Welcome to BIB Today, the podcast from the newsroom of business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe. BC Tech Association has inducted into its Hall of Fame several innovators across several technology sectors, including my guest today. I really look forward to having him on as a conversation. Jordy Rose has a string of impressive successes as an entrepreneur. He's the founder of D-Waste Systems, which uh, made the first commercially viable quantum computer. Kindred, a robotics and AI company for industrial purposes. And most recently, Sanctuary AI that makes humanoid general purpose robots fascinating in life. Uh, he joins me now. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too, Kurt. Listen, uh, I also, uh, I should mention all the side hustles you have. You were a national wrestling champion. Yeah. Uh, although that really was, isn't really a side thing. That was a long time ago. <laughs> Two-time national champion. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu now, which is a uh, related combat sport and I uh, love it. I do it mostly recreationally now and I, I do some coaching. So there is a, a, a thread that's gone through my whole life of, of uh, doing grappling related things, but not wrestling anymore. It's a, a young, young person sport. <laughs> okay. And the other one, of course, that always gets thrown into your resume, you have the Guinness uh, for a short time, the Guinness Book of World Records honor of most yogurt eaten in one minute. Now, why, why yogurt and why one minute? Like what? So the backstory there is that uh, when I was at D-Wave, I ran a group that was, uh, was get, tried, the purpose was to try to make everybody better, more fluid at communications work. One of the things we asked people to do was to, to practice and do a 30-minute presentation to, the, to the, the assembled group about any topic at all. And the one that I chose, why is lost in the, in the mists of time, but I chose the Guinness Book of World Records. And I thought it would be uh, entertaining to everyone in there if I tried to actually break a world record during that 30 minutes. Uh, because one of the things about communication is you want to be memorable. So uh, I will, I flipped through the uh, the the pages on the internet of all the different records that there were, and the only one that I thought could realistically be broken by me in the time I had was that yogurt one because I like yogurt. So I uh, I set it up. Uh, we had the adjudication set up and the whole thing, and I broke the world record during that uh, thirty minutes. I, I've never asked a world record holder before, but uh, how many times do you practice before you? Uh get perfect. Well, in this particular case, zero. I'm sure the other record holders do a lot more than that. So, so you were like the spontaneous world record holder. That's pretty good. You have to, well, uh, you know, you know, when you're, when you're as big as I am, you can eat a lot. So I figured I could take on the challenge and I was right, but I didn't hold it for long. Actually, the, as my, as my results were winging back to headquarters, uh, someone else broke the record more than I had done. And I, I very, I, I very briefly considered trying to retake the the lead, but then I figured that would degenerate into a <laughs> into yeah. something that I didn't want to uh, be involved in. So I I tapped out gracefully and congratulated the new winner. Be like that guy on Coney Island that eats about forty million hot dogs in a minute. You don't want to be that guy. Yeah, I think that I was I, I did my bit, and then uh, I was happy with the result. But it's interesting you, you mentioned this world record thing and and, and uh, the thirty minute presentation and that kind of thing. But that obviously is a reflection of the kind of leader that you are too, which is that, you know, you've attracted thousands, I guess, of people into ventures that carry with them a lot of daring do, right? I mean, you're, you're trying to break through technologies and, and do that and doing that, you, you have to attract a certain type of person and you, you have to be kind of person. So what kind of define yourself as a bit of a leader? You know, what, what are the things that you think are the qualities that make a big difference for you? In, in being able to attract so many good people. 
ambition of the project is probably the main one. So all, all three things that I've done professionally are uh, very ambitious, kind of global scale challenge type problems. And uh, good people seek challenges in their lives. So I, I think that the, that's the main one. Any success I've had at recruiting uh, good people has largely come from the nature of the challenges we've been facing. And, and you know, I suppose my role in that is having the, uh, I suppose, the chutzpah or something to, uh, to take on these types of global challenges that have some kind of origin or root in deep science. You know, that, that's very visionary. Does that mean that you're less of a delegator? Uh, no, I mean, I think that in terms of my own personal style, the people who I work with, I tend to see them as kind of the CEOs of their areas. And I actually don't have much to say about how they run their parts of the business. I think that it's not my job to be an expert in everything. They, my, the way I view this, especially in the, the sort of the, the, the waning years of the remainder of my career as I get older, is that my, my main responsibility is making sure the right people are in the right roles and they're doing the right things. How they do that is not something that I generally involve myself in, as long as they're performing well and they're getting along with everyone else, which is a big part of this. Uh, I don't really, I don't get into the details too much, at least at this point. I used to in earlier in my career because my specific technical background was directly on and the technical areas that we worked in at D-Wave. But my later career has been mostly about artificial intelligence and robotics, and I'm by no means an expert in either of those fields. So I, uh, I become quite good at listening and not, not speaking. To be a good listener, uh, you, you know, you also though have to be uh, highly knowledgeable. You, you, you have to have uh, an adaptability around ideas and you have to be excited and intrigued by things. Do, do you have a, a method of decision-making that you can point to, you know, the, the way that, the way that you arrive at a, a decision to move forward on something? Well, so I, I think that this is very important to have a kind of an overriding principle that allows you to make decisions. So for me, it's very simple at Sanctuary. We are a mission-driven organization, we have a mission. And for what I always do at the end of the day is ask the question of the options available to us, which gets us to mission success fastest. So that's a really simple, basic concept, but it is very powerful because it keeps me focused on the most important thing for me, which is to, to first define and then execute against the very specific thing, very specific challenge. And it prevents me from getting sidetracked into details. I think often, especially if you're doing something very complex, it's quite easy to sort of get trapped in this labyrinth of too many competing notions and all of them pulling in different directions. So for me, I always go back to first principles and ask, well, why, are, why does this organization exist? And how do we get to the point where it is doing the thing that we all set out to do as quickly as possible? So usually this is what it boils down to is when I have to make a decision, it's a choice amongst options. First of all, there are only a limited number of options usually. And I pick the one that gets us to mission success fastest. So I talked last week to a couple of business leaders at opposite ends of the decision-making approach. One has a, a, a theme of seven minute meetings and the other one has a decision-making process of sleeping on everything. Where do you fall in between? I think it really depends on the context and the nature of the decisions being made because not all decisions are the same. I think for for really meaningful decisions that are where the options that you're picking from really are forks in the road, you need to really consider them 
carefully. So for me, that's more of a, a deliberative process where it's an un, it's an unrolling or a uh, or, or an iteration. So you've got a bunch of information today. Information is going to be different in a week and in a month. If the new information that you're getting would change your mind about an important decision, you shouldn't be making it right now. So I have to convince myself that in the some reasonable time frame, say a few months, um, I'm not going to change my mind about something because one of the things that really loses you respect as a leader is lack of conviction. So when you when you decide something important and then you you know two months later say no we're not doing that anymore we're doing this other thing it might be the reasonable rational thing to do to change but it's just a human psychology that the people who are around you are going to start think less of you so the and your ability to make good good calls so for me I think most most things that don't really move the needle and matter have to be done immediately so the seven minute meeting is more where I would go. But there are certain things that don't fall into that bucket where you really do need to be deliberative and make sure that you're not going to change your mind. And these tend to be things that really set strategic course, things that matter over periods of years, like who your customers are, for example. You know, in the case of Sanctuary, we're building a platform, general purpose technology that can be applied in multiple different areas. So who we partner with as, as customers and who we bring on as investors are strategic decisions. They're not all paths and in the same spot. So we have to be very careful about those kinds of things. You mentioned how uh, an about turn can leave the workforce feeling that perhaps, you know, you're, you're not uh, deliberative enough, uh, you know, you didn't weigh things properly. You know, it, it can appear to be a sign of weakness, but a lot of people would say also that acknowledging an error is actually a sign of some strength. How do you deal with going back on on a, an error or going back on a mistake in judgment so that you you don't lose that credibility with your team? It's difficult. So I think it, the analogy that came to mind is when you hire somebody who's not the right person for the job and you have to let them go, the, you need to do those sorts of things. But every time you do it, you start front-end loading more of the decision-making so that it doesn't happen again. So in, in my case, you know, in my, early on in my career, the same with everybody, I made a lot of mistakes. So I've tried to set up a process of thinking about things so that major mistakes are very unlikely to happen. Now, they, they sometimes happen and they're outside of your control. I'll give one specific example. So we're a company that builds advanced AI systems for controlling robots. And something happened a few months ago, which was unforeseen by anyone in the industry, which is the introduction of these things called large language models, which are a type of AI system that's relevant to our work and many others. So we couldn't have known that that was about to happen, but it affects strategy and affects your planning. So there are there are always, no matter what you do, errors in judgment on strategy when you're at the frontier of technology that happen sometimes out of your control. So you have to be able to navigate those and change how you behave. But generally speaking, people are okay with that sort of thing. You know, what you have to avoid are is this kind of indecision uh, stuff, uh, the the appearance of being too uh, flip floppy or too flexible. So I think people want leaders that they that stand for something very specific and are firm about those things, even with headwinds. So I make it a point of repeating our mission every single time we bring the the group together, I make it very clear that this, these words have never changed over the six years that the company's been around and they never will. So these kinds of things, I think, provide structure to people's work days and their, their way they think about the world that they appreciate. And, and specifically in the modern world, I think that they 
they need. You know, the, the modern world for all of its benefits has stripped away a lot of the rules and kind of protocols that we used to have not so long ago that all sorts of different sort of, you know, civilizational institutions have gone down in, in kind of weight in our, in our everyday life. Um, we don't believe in things the same way we used to. So I think that being able to provide people with uh, something to work towards that's bigger than themselves, this mission, be it, you know, going to Mars or building general intelligence or, you know, uh, taking away the need to do dull, dangerous, dirty work or whatever happens to be something that people can rally around that doesn't change from day to day. You know, it's always there. That bedrock allows you to keep things. Like one of the things that I think that I've been quite good at is not just hiring people, but retaining them. You know, we've, we've had, uh, three companies now in British Columbia that I've been involved with that not only have brought hundreds of qualified PhD level scientists to Canada, but that they've stayed and they've continued to work at those companies because those companies stand for something. They, they, they mean something bigger than just a job. Um, so I, I, I don't, I would never want to, to show that I'm not, I don't have conviction around a, that particular type of thing, but sometimes you do make mistakes. And so how do you respond to those? Well, you, you try to do it quickly, transparently. Here's the reason why this mistake was wrong. And here's the new thing that we're, we're going to do. And if somebody asks a question about it, you just answer it the best that you can. You do it right away. So, you know, in the large language models was an example of this new technology pops up. It's relevant to what we do. We have to change the plan. Here's how we're going to do it. Let's go. So it sounds as if what you try to do is in, in this swirl of change is uh, make sure that you've got first principles there. And, and that sounds like it stabilizes the workforce, makes them respect you and, and listen and obviously feel a, a commitment of, on their own. So where do you do your thinking about this? Is it on site at, in the office? Is it you go for walks? We, we, you meditate? Wait, where, where do you, where, what's the source of that? Uh, so my, my life is very regimented and always has been since I was young. I have a lot of structure in my life. I do the same things at the same time every day. Um, I, I eat the same foods at the same times every day. There is a certain constitution that craves discipline and I'm one of those. So I, I like that. For me, um, the sorts of ideas that I've worked on are constant. I don't have a moment of the day except potentially when I'm doing something like jujitsu, where you need to have the full attentional focus in the moment where I'm not thinking about some aspect of the problem that we're trying to solve. So for me, it's, it's a, it's constant. I don't have a very particular mode where I think more or better about things. Um, it's just constantly churning. I do tend to be, my, my mind is clearer when I'm doing kind of low grade exercise, like walking or running you know, the, in the, the jujitsu context, when I'm, you know, warming up, you know, when I'm not actually, you know, going hard, that's, I do have moments of greater clarity during those points, but I, 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 I it's not restricted to that. I'm always thinking about, about the, the task at hand. I, I ask uh, leaders this question quite a bit, like, uh, how do you make sure you don't forget an idea? Well, uh, there's a couple ways. Uh, one is, and it depends kind of what it is. If it's a new technical idea, we have a process internally where we capture intellectual property that requires me to write an email to our IP lead. So if, if an idea comes to me and I think, oh, this is an interesting thing. I wonder if anyone's thought of that. I immediately write an email to, to Thomas, our, our VP of intellectual property. And, and that captures that idea. If it's more of a, um, 
like uh, off the cuff but not so well formed. I usually I usually confer with uh, Dr. Suzanne Gilbert, who's their chief technology officer, and it's kind of like person I kind of um, you know like kind of use as a sounding board most internally. But if it's kind of like a, a lower level thought, sometimes it kind of goes away and comes back. So I figure if an idea is good enough and I forget about it and I don't do something about it and it doesn't come back, it probably wasn't all that good idea anyway. So I uh, sometimes they boomerang. Sure. So why are people so afraid of AI right now, Jordy? That's a complicated question. And I'm not sure I have a good answer. I think that there's there's a lot of different things going on. I do recognize that the attending to this subject, not just in AI, but also more generally in, in robotics. So AI means different things to different people. The kind of AI that we build is embodied, that it is moves machines. So the, the thing about the, the robotics world is that it has a long history of integrating into workflows with people. So there's, a, there's an infrastructure that's developed about managing safety and and you know, the, the reliability and so on that we are more in the world of. So for our machines, there are professional governing bodies that have decided how to decide how to certify products in our world. So our, our role is to fulfill those and so that we can deploy. And you've got guardrails there. You've kind of got guardrails on all of that. Well, it's not just us. It's the community at large sets the standards for what's acceptable and what isn't. Um, in the case of the, the broader uh, world of AI, I think that most, most fear is driven by uncertainty and the unknown. Is it not knowing what a thing is, is sometimes a lot more scary than when it's fully revealed and you can kind of look at it. And I think that new AI models and the, co- the concept of AI itself is not easy to understand for most people. And that engenders of a, a, a potentially a fear response. Now, personally, as an expert, somebody who's worked in the field for you know at least half my career, I have no fear at all about the uh, coming of these new kinds of technologies. I think they're going to unlock a kind of flourishing that human civilization has never seen. You know, it's going to be it's going to make the steam engine look like you know a blip, in uh, all all to the mostly to the good. Um, so I'm I'm I think more automation and more technology is better for people. And uh, this is my perspective as an insider. There's nothing to be afraid of. It's good. Good to know. Are governments moving too quickly to talk about their own regulations with these? I mean, is, 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 this, is the field far enough along to have the correct context for regulation yet? We have to be careful about the motives of the folks who are pushing for regulation. The fact of regulation is is necessary. You know, there there do need to be community guardrails set up around any powerful tool or technology. There, there's lots of historical evidence that doing this is 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 beneficial for everybody. You know, making rules about what can be done and what can't. But the the nature of the rules. My, part of my hesitation here is that it's not yet clear what this technology that we're regulating is. Yeah. And the folks who are pushing for regulation are uh, conflicted in that many of them are industry leaders. And an industry leader pushing for regulation looks an awful lot like pulling a ladder up behind you. So the the not to say that that's what's happening, but it is a risk that we could have misaligned incentives is that the people who are pushing for regulations may have ulterior motives. 
And that means not only are, are the regulations misset, but it, though they could be misset in a way that actually is, runs counter to the original intent, which was to foster a, a, an environment where things can develop uh, safely, but not be stifled and certainly not drive innovation to other countries, which I think is one of the main concerns that I have is that if you regulate something somewhere, somewhere else it won't be regulated. And what will end up happening is something as fluid as the workforce will just move to those other places. And then those technologies will evolve and develop there. I would certainly would not want that for Canada. You know, Canada is ideally suited to be the place where general intelligence develops first in the world. And it will be one of the most you know, powerful things that human technology has ever developed and we could have it here. So you probably uh, shook your head when the suggestion arose that maybe there should be a six month moratorium or something like that on, on the rollout of anything. Well, I think that, the, that many of the people who suggest these things are well-meaning and they have arguments that you can't simply, you know, I'll say this is not a good argument. It's not the case. But the the thing about all these things is that I was mentioning before about choices amongst options. So my view of the world is very specifically when you make a decision, you're choosing amongst a set of options. And often when people argue for a perspective or against a perspective, they don't do it in that way. So if I say, let's put a moratorium on something for six months, that's an option. What are the other options? Because we need to weigh those too, because the one that we pick is the best possible option, right? So it could be that something like that has some benefits and it has some drawbacks. The question is, what are the other things as benefits and drawbacks and which one is best? And in this analysis, those were not presented, at least as far as I know. So the, the, my, my view, again, this is speaking just as myself, is that you want to be light on regulations until the shape of a thing fully forms. So in certain kinds of technologies, we actually know what they look like. You know, we know what their implications are. We know how good or bad they are. But with emerging technologies like AI and robotics, we actually don't know the shape of the thing yet. So regulating it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And therefore, it makes me suspicious that the drivers of the demand for regulation have something else that they're going for, which isn't the thing that is the obvious thing on the tin, yeah. which makes me nervous. And I, I think that the, the, as, as citizens, it's right to demand that the technologies that big companies make and deploy fulfill certain characteristics, being safe and so on. But we have, to, we have to be skeptical sometimes of the motivations for some of these things. Yeah. It's like, a, a, you know, right now, first world versus third world around energy. A lot of dictating of, uh, of how developing countries need to develop their energy when, in fact, we've benefited for generations. Um, yeah, that's such truism, follow the money. You know, when somebody has some altruistic statement about how they want to save the world and make everything safe, be skeptical and, and, and follow the money. And you might find something that wasn't what you thought it was. Yeah. Last question. Uh, I, I teach ethics uh, part-time and, you know, what we're told in ethics is that there's never one right and one wrong answer. There's usually a lot of correct answers you have to like to your point you have to choose among the options is there kind of a, a statement of some sort around the way in which ai ought to best develop itself ethically well there are many such statements but i don't particularly think any of them are even near the right answer and i think it it really boils down to what you just said is that you know ethical questions are always in context you know, something can be very good for some group of people and bad for another. The 
you know, the history of technology is littered with these things where there have been winners and losers as technologies have developed and evolved. So I would say that, that no, there aren't anything that I would personally say has, has been, you know, elucidated the problem with clarity. And it's actually a very difficult problem because what we're talking about when we talk about embodied AI is creating something that Kevin Kelly calls the seventh kingdom of life. You know, it's a new kind of thing that's not like the machines we've built before. And the ethical responsibilities involved in creating what's essentially a new branch of, <laughs> of life are, are, are deep, complex. Uh, there are a lot of gray areas. And I think that the way that I personally view this is need to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. I don't believe in these overarching rules. Is that when you're presented with a decision in life and you need to choose what to do, you apply your own filter to that particular decision and you make the best choice that you can. Uh, in terms of like the ethical considerations, it's very difficult for me to think about this in terms of absolutes. You know, we are, you're always dealing with gray areas and trade-offs and there will always be winners and always be losers. Uh, and the kind of, if there's any overriding thing that I personally believe, I think that knowledge and its acquisition is always to the good. You know, there are, there are always edge cases and things where it doesn't turn out well, but, you know, understanding something I think always leads to a, a betterment of humankind and understanding our own minds, which is really what this is about. You know, AI can be a very sterile sounding academic thing for a lot of people, but at the, at its root, the reason we study these systems and try to build them is that we're trying to, we're trying to build mimics of ourselves. We're trying to understand the way our minds work enough to, uh, to build them. Yeah. And so doing will, will unlock a kind of understanding that's new for, for humanity and our, you know, technological place in the universe is, you know, understanding conscious first person experience, for example, will fundamentally change the way that we understand the world. Yeah. No question. Well, last thing that I leave you with then, uh, you know, cause you're talking about, uh, we talked about fear and, and, uh, maybe th- that perhaps, uh, we're not at a point yet where enough understanding is there about what we're really working with, what we're dealing with. You, you have no fear of it, uh, as a, as an expert. So at the very least, is it, is it going to be important for the sector to show its work, to be transparent about what it's doing? That also is a complex question because it. It depends specifically how how the technologies, what the tech shape of the technology is. I would say that it's actually to the company's benefit, generally speaking, to be as transparent as they can be in the context of the business about what their technology actually does and how it works. So, for example, in the social media companies, what you see on your feed comes from some type of algorithm, and that algorithm is complicated, and there's a whole bunch of factors that are involved in it. As a consumer of social media, I would like to know why I'm being shown the things that I am. So as the consumer of that particular te- technology, if a company was willing to share that with me, I would be more likely to use their product. So there may be market forces that push technology companies into being transparent about how their technologies work, as long as the people who consume their products demand it. So I actually think that the this question about whether companies who are the ones who are bringing AI and robotics into the world, it's, it's all companies now, how they behave in terms of this question can be dictated by market forces. So if people really want to understand how this stuff works, you know, uh, vote with your wallet. Yeah. Don't be passive. Right. Yeah. Great conversation, Jory. I uh, talked to you for hours, but you're a busy guy. 
<laughs> I'm going to let you get back to doing something, <laughs> doing something approaching product, uh, productive time. But I thank you for your time today. It's been great. Congratulations on the honor and uh, lots of lots of those already and lots to come. Yeah. Well, this one is especially meaningful for me. You know, I've been in British Columbia more than half my life now, and uh, you know, I feel like this is home. And getting a getting a uh, recognition like this is a, is a significant honor. You know, recognition by your peers is the best kind of recognition, I think. And I, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that the community voted me into this particular one. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Hope we can talk again. Good talking to you. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and executive editor at BIB. Thanks a lot for watching.